for being such a great God. Lord, we praise you for being such a great God because we recognize and acknowledge that you are great. Now, Lord, my prayer as always is that it would be all of you, none of me, that you would increase as I decrease. That the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, would be acceptable in thy sight. Lord, you are my strength. You are my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. I could, I could call out a couple of more, y'all, after that. Marty, God bless you, Marty. Kiarve, God bless you. What a blessing. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask you to join me. We're going to start, we're going to end up continuing in our series in Esther, but we're going to start with another verse from another book in the New Testament. So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to read real quick Philippians 1.6. Philippians 1.6. Philippians 1.6. If you don't have it in your Bible, it's on your screen. For those of you at home, hopefully uh, you can turn there. We'll be in Esther, but we'll start here in Philippians. Philippians 1.6 says this. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Or, and I am sure of this, that, who, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's a good word for us today. Uh, there is an encouraging word for us today, though, as we continue our journey through the book of Esther. There's, a, there's, there's an encouraging word that is connected to that verse from Philippians that I just read from you, from Philippians 1.6. We're going to also find evidence of this encouraging word in Esther. And here is that encouraging word. God always finishes what he starts. Uh, uh, so that, that should help somebody today. Because there's somebody out there either with us in person or online watching us that's just not sure if God is going to complete what he started. Not just in you but in this thing, right? This thing that's been promised to us in scripture. What is this thing? The gospel and how God has promised us that this story will end. Brother Sam, he promised us a way that he showed us how it was going to end, didn't he? And But there are some that, especially in difficult times like we're living in right now, find themselves doubting. I'm talking about good Christian folks. Like some of y'all in this room right now, like me sometimes, you know, all of us find ourselves every now and then teetering on doubt or in doubt. But I want to share with you, and I'm gonna, I think we're going to see in Esther today that God always, not sometimes, not every now and then, but God always finishes what he starts. Unlike us, unlike us, he never leaves a project undone. Amen, somebody. Uh, that, that's, that's not like us. That's not like us. I know I start stuff all the time. But God's not like that. He never leaves a project undone or unfinished. He never walks away. He never walks away. He doesn't quit in the middle of anything. He doesn't do that. Uh, it never gets too complicated or too frustrating for God. That's not my testimony. Right, that's not my story. But God never gets frustrated. It never gets too complicated for him. He always achieves what he sets out to achieve. 
He always fulfills his promises. Uh, now, there may be delays along the way. There may be detours along the way. But eventually, God brings about exactly what he sets out to accomplish. I don't care how long it may take. I don't care if there may be detours. I don't care if there may be valleys. I don't care if there may be mountaintops. I don't care what happens along the way. He always accomplishes what he sets out to accomplish. This fascinating story in Esther that we've been following since Mother's Day is a prime example of this very thing. It's a prime example. Uh, just a brief recap for those of you that uh, have not been with us or you need to just, your memory needs to be refreshed on what has happened thus far, right? Remember, beginning in chapter 1, the king calls his wife out to put, be put on display. She refuses, and because of it, she's banished from the palace and from the kingdom. They have a beauty pageant, and Esther is chosen to be the new queen, right? There's a conflict between uh, Esther's uh, adopted dad and cousin Ham uh, Mordecai and this guy that shows up on the scene by the name of Haman. Haman desires that Mordecai would bow down and show him deference and reverence, and, Mor and Mordecai refuses to do so. Right. And so then uh, Haman cooks up this scheme to destroy not just Mordecai, but all of Mordecai's people as well. Mordecai gets wind of it and he begins to mourn and weep as he gets the news that this plot and this scheme has been cooked up. He seeks out his adopted daughter, his cousin, who's now been elevated to the queen's position in the palace to try to help with it. He says to her that I shared with you a couple weeks ago that he says to her what we ought to realize right now and he says this in a sense he says Esther don't miss your moment because he says who knows that if you've been called to the kingdom for such a time as this right Esther is at first afraid because there's a law that says brother Kimmy she can't approach the king unless she's summoned. She asked all in the kingdom, all the Jews, all her people to pray and fast for her. It doesn't say pray but we know that prayer and fasting goes together don't we? I left off a couple of weeks ago telling y'all don't be like Haman, right? Haman had, had had a severe complex. He, he was a severely selfish guy. Esther prays and fasts and she gets this sudden burst of courage and she says, I'm going to the king and if I perish, I perish. She goes to the king, right? He extends to her the golden scepter. And she shares with him her issue, but she doesn't give it to share it with him fully, right? He, she invites him to a feast and at the feast she invites him and Haman to the feast the king and Haman and she doesn't share fully what it is that's on her heart she says come back tomorrow and tomorrow I'm having another feast and I'm inviting both of you to the second feast and at the second feast I'll share with you what's on my heart and that kind of sort of brings us up to chapter 6 and 7 that we covered last week and last week in chapter 6 and 7 we found out that justice was done Right. For both Mordecai, who received his reward and Haman, who received his punishment. And so when we left off last week, Haman had been hung. Somebody help me on the gallows that he had built for Mordecai. I told you in scripture, it said, be careful digging a ditch for somebody else, because if you're not careful, you'll find yourself falling into that very ditch that you dug for someone else. And we found that to be the case last week in 6 and 7. Well, that brings us then to our passage for today. Where today, we, today as we continue our series entitled God's Providence, uh, this will be part 6 of that series, God's Providence, and we will be taking a look today at chapters Eight and part of chapter 9. Chapter 8, 1 through 17. Chapter 9, 1 through 19 is where we'll spend our time today. Uh, so we'll do that as we make our way to the end of the story, which will happen next week. Make sure you come back or tune in next week because next week, by the way, is Father's Day. I know we don't get all excited like we do when it's Mother's Day, but we should. <laughs> amen. Some of the fathers in the house should have said amen. But we're going to close out this look at the story in the book of Esther next week. Uh, next week uh, on Father's Day, we'll do that. 
But as we make our way to the end of the story, in today's segment of this series, I believe we'll see two things. As we look at 8 and part of 9, I believe we'll see two things. In 8, 1 through 17, I believe we'll see vindication. I believe we'll see that. I believe we'll see vindication. And in 9, 1 through 19, I believe we'll see vengeance. Those are two things I think we'll see in today's uh, segment of this story. So if you would, I'd ask you to join me as we read all of Esther chapter 8 together. Would you do that? It should be on your screen if you don't have your Bible. But I'm going to read, reading from the ESV version of the Bible. Uh, Esther chapter 8, all of that chapter reads this way. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther said, Mordecai, over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king and she said, if it please the king and if I have found favor in his sight and if the thing seems right before the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of, Ham of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in the script, in, in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name, and he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses, and they and they and swift horses that were used in the king's service bred from the royal stud, saying to the king, uh, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill and annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. One, on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the, on the third on the 13th day of the 12th month, month, which is the month Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes and blue, of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor in, and in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. From this chapter, chapter 8, I see vindication for God's people. It's all throughout this chapter. We see that God's people are vindicated. 
but I, but I see I see certain things though throughout this chapter, chapter eight, that I want to that I want to pull out and talk about with you. First thing I see in verses one and two is I see this transfer. There's a transfer that happens in verses one and two. It's a transfer of wealth and power. It's a transfer in verses one and two of wealth and power. It it reminds me of. Proverbs 13, 22, where it says this, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but, sinner, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. My goodness. Listen, we see in verses one and two, a transfer of wealth and power. You'll recall that in Esther chapter three, verse 13, it says this, Letters, it says, this is what it says in 313. It says, this letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill and annihilate all Jews, young and old, and children in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, and to plunder their goods. It sounds similar to what I just read here in chapter 8, but this is way back in chapter 3. And the difference is, is when it was said in chapter three, it was addressed to the Jews who were who were uh, threatened with plunder and with annihilation. And not watch this, not only that plunder, annihilation and plunder, because all of their goods were set to be taken by Haman and his crew. Right. That's what that was the original reading of what we just read in chapter 8. It was similar but different. Haman had hoped to confiscate the Jews' possessions. But now we're in chapter 8. Chapter 3, that's what he had hoped to do. We're in chapter 8 now. And the tables, as I told you last week, have now... Thank you. The tables have turned now. We're in chapter 8. Uh, Haman is dead now. He's dead. He's long gone. He's, he's been hung on his own gallows. He's, he's dead. And his own property now is removed and given to Esther, who then appoints Mordecai to oversee it. The wealth of the sinner or the wicked. There's not even anything left for the children. There's nothing left because, now, now, now watch this, let, let, let me say this to you. God does not always operate this way. But the good news is, is that whenever there is, God will operate this way. He promises us in his word that, that he'll supply all of our needs, right? He promises us that we'll be above and not beneath. This is not God uh, propagating prosperity gospel. This is God saying that I will supply. And he also says you will be vindicated. So he vindicates his people by transferring the wealth of this wicked man, Haman, to the righteous people who are his followers. Right? That's a word for us today. That we never have to worry that we won't have what we need. Because God is that kind of God. So the tables have turned. And now what was due and belonged to Haman has been shifted, transferred to Esther and Mordecai. But then I see in three through seven, I see this Esther's plea. She makes a plea. Esther has already made a plea. Now she makes a plea in three through seven. Three through seven, uh, although we've already read it, although both Mordecai and Haman have now received what was due them. I already told you Mordecai has received reward in chapter six and seven, in chapter six, and Haman received punishment in chapter seven. So that then that's happened, but Haman is no longer now a threat because Haman is dead. So the question would arise in one's mind, why is there still a need for a plea? Because the threat seemingly has been eliminated. Haman is now dead. He's the one that came up with the plot and the plan. But the problem is, is that there was a decree or an edict that was issued by the king that could not, according to law, be reversed. 
And so even though the threat is dead, even though Haman no longer exists, there is still this decree and this edict that's out there that says all of the Jews, all the Mordecai's people will be destroyed, destroyed, annihilated on one day in one fell swoop. And so uh, Esther has to address this issue. So she goes to the king with this plea. Now she's unconcerned about her safety. Remember the first time she was asked to go to the king, she was concerned that, that he might kill her, she, he might have her killed. Now she's emboldened, she has this courage and this renewed faith. Uh, and so she goes to the king with this plea. She pleads for her people in three through seven. She makes a plea to the king on their behalf. This is what it says. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot he had devised against the Jews. That's essentially what she does. She goes and she pleads with the king to do something about this plot, this evil plan. I, I, I'm crying out on behalf of my people. I, I'm no longer afraid of what's going to happen to me. I know that you've extended favor to me, and I am asking you, I'm pleading you to do something because this letter, this decree, this edict still exists. What I like about it is, is what happens next. I like what happens next in verses 8 through 14 because in verses 8 through 14, there is a decree, there is an edict out there. But in verses 8 through 14, we're going to see that there is a counter to the letter, to the edict, to the decree that's already out there. We'll find in 8 through 14 what I like to call a counter edict. You're going to get excited hopefully in a minute about counter edicts because you'll find out in just a minute that God has already extended to us a counter edict because we were we had one decreed against us. I'll tell you about it in a minute. In verses 8 through 14, we find this counter edict. Here's the issue. I've already said to you, the king could not revoke the previous decree according to the law. So. He simply made another decree giving support to the Jews against their attackers. Text says it, and let's, let's start in verse 8. I'm sorry. Yeah, in verse 8 again. Let's read it. Verse 8 says this, but you may write as you please with regard to the Jews. You may write what you please in regard to the Jews. In the name of the king, use my name and seal it with my ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. He says, you have, he says, he says this, I can't change what's already been written. I can't do anything about that. But what I can do is I can, I can give you the authority to write a new one. And the new one that'll be sealed with my ring will supersede the one that's already out there. It's a counter edict. It's another text that calls it another decree. Another decree. Uh, it's similar to what God did for us, right? If you think about it, it's, it's, I'm not saying that the king, we, we can compare the king. Certainly we can't do this uh, to God, but, it, but, but, but this reminds me, Brother John, of what God did for us. We might think of Haman uh, as in place of our enemy, the devil, right? When we look at Haman and all of his evil and all that, we, we can really compare him to our enemy, Satan. And, joy, and, and, and when we do that, we can joyfully await the day that God puts Satan away. It's been promised to us in Scripture that that's going to happen, right, one day. All of this will, will, be, will pass away and there'll be peace and we won't have to deal with this enemy anymore. But we still must deal right now with the righteous decree of God that demands our death. It's a righteous decree. It, it, uh, Ezekiel 18.4 says this, the soul who sins shall die. That's a decree. The soul who sins shall die. That's a decree. So we've got to be able to deal right now with this righteous decree that's already been decreed in the word of God. 
In our sins, we not only have an enemy, Satan, but we also have a legal decree from a God who's righteous against us. What do we do? (laughs) It sounds like a dilemma, doesn't it? It's already been written. It's already in Scripture, right? There's this decree against sinners of which we are guilty. God, though, solves the problem. This is what I like about this counter edict, this counter decree thing. God solves the problem. He solves it not by compromising his law, not by compromising his original decree. He doesn't do that. His original decree for eternal justice, but by fulfilling justice in taking punishment, the punishment that we rightfully deserve. He counters what is his decree against the sinner, doesn't he? He counters it by by taking the punishment that we deserved. His counter decree, his counter edict saves all of us. It does. Uh, This is what Romans 3.26 says this, that that, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He can't do anything about what, what, what his loss is about the sinner. It's already written. But what I love about God is that he can create a counter. And he did, didn't he? He gave us his life so that we could inherit eternal life. So that even though it's been written, it's been signed, it's been sealed in Scripture all throughout, he gave us a way out. He has a counter for us, just like he has a counter for Esther, Mordecai, and his people. And then what I see as we conclude chapter 8, I see this great reversal. There's a great reversal in 15 through 17. I'm going to read these verses to you again. 15 through 17 say this. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. These three verses are a direct contrast as they are juxtaposed against chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. It's a direct, just like we just read earlier, the, the, the contrast in the transfer of wealth. There's a contrast here as well in chapter 4, with chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. This is what it says. Let me read it for you. You don't have to go back there. This is what it says in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And see if you notice this contrast, right? Remember, Go back in your mind to what happened in chapter 4, and let's look at it, right? It says this, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was... Great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. This is a contrast. I hope you saw it already. There's a contrast there between four and eight. The the first part of four and the end of eight. Here it is. Uh, The city of Susha, Susha, which was formerly in total confusion. At the end of chapter three, it says they were in confusion. And that that was realized and recognized when we get to chapter four because we see them mourning and weeping and in sackcloth and ashes. They were in confusion and chaos because of this plot that had been cooked up by Haman. Uh, the mourning of Mordecai and the Jews had, then, had, had, had turned then now to celebration. They were mourning and weeping uh, in chapter three and four. 
Now we're in chapter 8, and it now, that morning has turned to celebration with gladness and with joy and with honor. Something has happened. God has seemingly finished what he said he was going to do because weeping and tears have now turned to celebration. Mordecai's clothing has even changed. There's a contrast. You remember, I just read it for you. He was, at one point, his clothing consisted of sackcloth and ashes. Now we get to chapter 8, 15 through 17, and all of a sudden he does no, he no longer has sackcloth and ashes, but now he has royal robes of blue and white. Royal robes of purple. A royal crown is now on his head. There has been a reversal of fortunes. There has been a reversal that has happened uh, on behalf of Mordecai and God's people. So this contrast exists. Uh, God has seemingly uh, fulfilled the promise that he made to his people once again. We don't necessarily see the promise here in Esther, but we can trace it back. Because it's not evident in Esther. God's name is not even anywhere in Esther. None of that's present in Esther. But I told you when we started this series that everything that happens in Esther can be traced back to Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God calls Abram from his father's house and says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless those that bless you and I'll curse those that curse you. From you will come many nations and nothing will stand in the way of that happening. And we see that Haman tried to get in the way. As we get to chapter 8, the weeping and the morning has turned into shouting and rejoicing. There has been this reversal that has happened in this story. Lastly, in verse 17, in verse 8, the last part of this before we jump to chapter 9, this reversal of fortunes for the Jews brought about a reversal in the hearts, in the hearts of many Gentiles. As many of them became Jewish proselytes, as they recognized the undeniable hand of God that was unmistakably on his people. Doesn't mention his name anywhere. Nobody uh, uh, seemingly is praying to him, serving him, but his hand is all. And, 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 and the Gentiles who witnessed all of this. See, this is why it's so important uh, how we conduct ourselves, how we live our lives, how we praise God, how we worship God in difficult times and in hard times. It's so important because, Sister Martha, we never know who's watching. And the text says that because of what God was doing behind the scenes on behalf of his people, many of those who were Gentiles became Jews. Not Jews by birth, not Jews by lineage, but they wanted to be a part of this family. Isn't that something? That, that is evangelism 101. It's not about what you say. It's not about your talk. It's more about your walk. It's not about what people uh, can, can see you say, uh, 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 what they hear you say. It's more about what they see you do and how they see you uh, follow the God that you claim to follow. And when that happens, uh, people will begin to come to God because they'll see God in you. Because you have to remember that sometimes you're the only God that somebody might see. And it happens right here in Susa. They witness what God is doing on behalf of his people and they come to the Lord for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. They said, Lord, this, this God is doing amazing things. And so they come to him. Now, let's, trans, let's transfer, trans, uh, transition to chapter 9 and let's wrap this up chapter 9 I see so in chapter 8 I saw vindication in chapter 9 I see vengeance let me say this before I even jump into it vengeance belongs to God God avenges his people at, at, at some point he, he will have vengeance it's not up to us to do that it's up to our God the God we serve will do that let's read it real quick verses 1 through 19 say this now in the 12th month 
which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. I love that right there. Mm. The reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who, who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them. I like that too. No one could stand against them for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house. And his fame spread throughout all the provinces for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed all those names. I'm not going to even try that right now. <laughs> Verse 10. <laughs> On a better day, another day I might, but today just, you know, let's go to, let's go to verse 10. The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. The very day the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king, and the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this, to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa. And the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from the enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day that rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting and as a holiday, as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. We'll get into that next week, talk about the Feast, the feast of Purim. Uh, but today, let's look at, uh, as in a few minutes we have left, uh, chapter 19, where God exacts vengeance, right? He's a God of vindication. He's a God of vengeance. It's not our job. It's his, his, it's his God. Deuteronomy 32, 35 says this, vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip for the day of their calamity is at hand and their, and their doom comes swiftly. God is a God who will exact vengeance. In the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8 says this, since indeed God considers it just to repay, to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He is the one who, who takes care of the vengeance. So in verses 1 through and 2, I see that this great reversal that we talked about in chapter 8 continues. The great reversal continues. Here's what it says. I just told you I like it. It says this. When the enemies of the Lord hope to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. And there's some, we, we've already been talking about how things have, the tables have turned and this great reversal has taken place. Uh, here we find out that this great reversal continues because the enemies of the Jews had planned on this very day to take them all out. But instead, it happened to them. 
All of the enemy was, was, was overcome. And verse 2, it says this, no one could stand against them. It reminds me of what the prophet Isaiah says in 5417. You'll recall it. It's familiar. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the service of the Lord and their vindication from me declares the Lord. This great reversal is continuing throughout this story from that point to this point and beyond because I tell you this is happening right now. God has reversed some things in our life. God has given us uh, power over the enemy that without him we would not have. We have the ability to pray to an all-powerful God and he will flip that thing around and the enemy will have no power over us. No weapon formed against us shall prosper. It will be formed, but God will reverse that thing. Then so then the rest of the chapter, we see the Jews' success on account of their successes. God provided, I'm not going to read it all, we just read it. God provided the Jews with supernatural deliverance from those who hated them. Supernatural de deliverance from those who hated them. But his people, watch this, still had to fight. They still had to fight. They couldn't merely sit back and do nothing. We see in scripture that God will often intervene where his people don't have to lift a finger. We see it all throughout scripture. I read to you a few weeks ago uh, how Jehoshaphat was the beneficiary of just that thing. They didn't have to lift a finger. All they had to do was just march and shout and sing and God did all the fighting. But sometimes, sometimes, Oftentimes, God says, you cannot just sit idly by on your hands and do nothing. Not lift a finger. God says, no. Uh, other times, it, 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 it requires active involvement from his people. Such is the case with us. With us. I'm talking about us. I'm not talking about the people in Susa right now. i about people in Tyler. Those of you that are in these seats, those of you that are online, I'm talking about us. It sometimes it requires us to get up and do something. I'm not talking necessarily about physically. Amen, somebody. Uh, because here's the thing. Ephesians 6 and 12 reminds us what we're waging war against. And then 2 Corinthians 10 4 reminds us what our weapons are. So I'm not telling you that the Lord is requiring us to get up and duke somebody out. All right, all right. Because that doesn't work in this battle. Because that is not what our enemy, let me, let me read to you what Paul says about our enemy. He says this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over the present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in high places, in heavenly places. That is our enemy. But here's what our weapons are, because Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 10, 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. But you know what that means? It means that we've got to do something. It means we've got to be people of prayer. I mean, we've got to be people of submission to God. It means that we can't just sit back and let the enemy have his way with us. We've got to stand up and say, I, no, uh-uh, you're not, you're not having your way with me. Because yes, my weapons are mighty through God yes, to the pulling down of strongholds. And so God's people, though here in Susa and all throughout uh, the region, had to do something. They had to fight. We're not talking about a spiritual battle with them. We're talking about they had to go into physical battle. But the Lord blessed them to be victorious because it says on the day of the battle, the Jews killed 500 men just on the day of the battle, including the 10 sons of Haman. On the day of the battle, 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman. Then Esther asked for and is granted a second day. We just read it. She asked the king, we need another day. <laughs> 
because this job is not complete yet. We need another day to carry out the task of rooting out our enemy in this land. And so the king grants her a second day. And on the second day, there are 300 additional men were killed on that day. The text also says that in other provinces, this is just in Susa, in other provinces, there were 75,000 that thought they were in charge, that thought they were strong and mighty, that thought they were mighty in battle, but they didn't know the king of glory. Because I love what the scripture says when the king of glory comes in. When the king of glory comes in. Who is? I'm not going there. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your head. O ye gates and be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors. And when the king of glory, who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory and he came in in this text. 75,000 were destroyed. And then what it says is it says this. In all of this, it's stated three times that the Jews, uh, although they certainly had the opportunity to and could have, they never laid a hand on the plunder. That's what it keeps saying three times throughout. They never laid a hand on the plunder. Even though they were given authority to, they didn't do it. They seemingly were not interested in the property. And some have said that this is a reference back to Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15 in his disobedience when God sends him in to attack Amalek. And he tells Saul, don't bring anything back. Destroy everything. Don't bring anything back. Instead, he's disobedient. He destroys some of everything and he brings the king and some of the plunder back. And it's believed that it caused a curse on God's people from that point forward. And some have said that this was an attempt by the Jews to right the, Saul, the wrongs of Saul. So they refused to touch anything. They just destroyed everybody. So in chapter 8 and 9, we see both vindication and vengeance, which can be summed up in these familiar verses. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James 4 and 6. And then I love this one. Matthew 2016 says this. So the last will be first and the first last. Somebody should have shouted right there. <laughs> the last shall be first and the first last. And I'll end where I began today. God is a finisher. He will complete what he starts. And if there happens to be any remaining doubt about that after looking at all of chapter 8 and most of chapter 9, I'd like to share with you a couple of other scriptures that help us remember that God is a finisher. We can start in the beginning in Genesis 2-2 because in Genesis 2-2, here's what it says. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day. From all his work that he had done. I submit to you it also through that passage it says he, 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 he created something and he said it was good. He created something he said it was good. He created something he said it was good. Then he finished with mankind and he said it's very good. And it was finished then and he rested on the seventh day. He finished what he started. Secondly, we discover uh, that finishing his work was the very, at the very heart of Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus had a mandate that he would fulfill no matter what it cost him. So in John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do what the one who sent me wants me to do. The will of the one who sent me and to finish his work. That's what he said. But it's one thing to say something. It's a totally different thing to do something. You can say a whole lot of things, but the proof is in the pudding. What do you actually do? And I want to share with you that our God who said those words actually did something. Well, what did he do, preacher? Well, let me tell you what he did. In John 19, 30, we find Jesus on the cross 
We're talking about the God who is a finisher. Jesus is on the cross and here is what he said in his final decree from the cross. He says this, we, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished because it was finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He hung his head and died because it was finished. The God that we serve will always finish what he started and if he finished his work here on earth I'm confident in this very thing that he that had begun a good work in me and in you will perform it on the day that's been promised to us what is that day preacher the day that he said he's going to break the clouds it hadn't happened yet but if he finished everything else I have to believe that he's coming back one day. Why? Because he is a finisher. Lord, we thank you and we praise you that you are that kind of God. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your providence. Lord God, that is hidden, that is not seen, but is active. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're here, we'd love for you, if you don't know him, to get to know him. So we want to extend an invitation to those that may not know Christ, either if you're watching with us online or if you're here present. Uh, It's very simple. All it takes is just a confession that I am a sinner in need of a Savior and an invitation coming to my heart. I need you now. I can remember when I did it. That's pretty much all I said, Brother Michael. I just said, Lord, I need you now. I need you now. I didn't know all that heavy, deep stuff. I just said, I need you now. And all of a sudden, it felt like something came over me. I couldn't control myself because tears started flowing from my eyes. I didn't even know why I was crying, Brother Robbie. I just started crying and I just said, Lord, I need you now. It wasn't eloquent. It wasn't fancy. I didn't even know much scripture. I knew John 3.16. But that's really all I needed to know. He opened the door to my heart and came in. All I'm saying is that if there are those that are here now that like to experience that, you have that opportunity. Or if you're watching us online, just say, Lord, I need you. Wave your hand in the air and say, I surrender. I surrender all to you. All to the hour. And he'll come in. If you do that, uh, if you're here and you would like to do that, let us know and we'd love to pray with you. If you're online and do that, let us know. We'd love to celebrate with you as well. Amen. God bless you all. Um, We're so glad that you're here with us. Pray that uh, you make plans to be back with us next week on Father's Day. That's a big day, whether you believe it or not. Lisa, that's a big day, isn't it? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Brother Kimmy? All right. Father's Day, we'll close out Esther next week and uh, we'll look at our final look at God's providence and we pray that you'll be back with us. If there's nothing else, if our hearts and minds are clear, I want to say this closing prayer and benediction and bless you all as we prepare to leave here. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your word that is a lamp to our feet, a light to our pathway. Thank you, Lord, that you never left us nor forsaken us. You always finish what you start. Now we pray that you go out ahead of us, make the way clear that no hurt, harm, evil, or danger will be able to overtake us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.